You're listening to Preach the Word with David Ryu, Sermon Archive. Well, church, let us pray together. Our God and King, we exalt you and praise your name forever and ever. For you are most worthy of our praise. Your greatness no one can fathom. Your majesty is glorious beyond description. You are trustworthy in all your promises and faithful in all you do. And so, Lord, we pray for the weary, for the weak among us, for anyone feeling worn out and tired in their battle against sin and lusts of the flesh, for anyone who is feeling distressed from the worries of life and broken relationships, Lord, you have promised that you shall give strength to all who are weary and increase the power of the weak. You promised that those who trust in you will have their strengths renewed and that they will soar on wings like eagles. Lord, help us to trust in you and your promise. Help us to find hope in you and to claim this promise of enduring strength as we continue to fight the good fight of faith. And now, as we open up your Holy Scriptures, we ask your Holy Spirit to illuminate your words to us. Open our eyes that we may see wonderful things and more of Christ. Set aflame our hearts with holy affections and make this sermon most useful for the sanctification of your church. We pray all this in the great name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, let us continue in our sermon series through the book of Ephesians. Please open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 17. Hear the word of the Lord. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Amen. This was a reading of God's word. The Apostle begins this section with the word, finally. This is the conclusion and the closing remarks of Paul's heartfelt letter to the church in Ephesus. In this final section, we are told of a great battle against good and evil, against light and darkness, against 
God and Satan. And it so happens that we are in the midst of the battlefield, caught in the crossfire and susceptible to enemy attack. When we turn on the news, we see wars being fought all around the world. People are losing their homes, their limbs, their lives. Thank God that here in North America, we live in relatively peaceful times. We don't need to worry about a bomb dropping over our heads. It appears that there is no war being fought in our land. But our passage today plainly tells us that the devil has declared war against God and his church. Yet, I don't think many Christians actually believe that we are in the state of war. So many of us going on living our lives carelessly and without concern. So consider this. If an army of dangerous terrorists were roaming through our land with guns to oppress us, we would be on high alert, would we not? We would be prepared and equipped to protect ourselves and our loved ones. So when the Word of God tells us that we are in the middle of a war, the greatest war of all wars, against the greatest enemy of all enemies, why is it that we are found asleep? Maybe, just maybe, we severely underestimate the enemy. Because the devil is more cunning, more destructive, and more evil than a terrorist. Pastor Stephen Lawson puts it this way, quote, As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we find ourselves in the midst of an invisible war against an indomitable foe, who is none other than the devil himself. Many today will try to deny the existence of Satan, but he is made known in the pages of Scripture with remarkable clarity. The devil is taught in seven Old Testament books. He is taught by every New Testament writer, and he is taught especially by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The devil is real. He is more real than the person sitting next to you. And so you need to gaze upon God but you need to glance at the devil." End quote. When you engage in war, it is so important that you know your enemy. What often decides the outcome of the war is whether you have underestimated the enemy or you have studied the enemy enough to make necessary preparation. So the question is, do you know the enemy? Do you glance at the devil occasionally? Or have you forgotten his existence? The Bible tells us the devil is like a thief who comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. He wants to steal your joy and your eternal inheritance. 
He wants to kill you and everyone you love. He wants to destroy your life and your soul. And what's so frightening about the devil is that there is nothing you can do to stop him in your own power. He will completely overpower you. He will completely outsmart you. That's why Paul calls Satan the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2 and the God of this world in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The devil's influence stretches far across all human history and events and politics, education, commerce, and institutions. He was there in the beginning of creation to deceive our forefathers. And he's here now in our churches, in our homes, in our schools, in our relationships, in our marriages. We can keep our kids very far from dangerous terrorists, but we can't keep our kids very far from the devil. And so the apostle gives us this crucial instruction in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Paul is telling us where we can find strength. And the source of power to withstand the enemy's assaults is not found in ourselves. It's not even found in the church. Coming to church doesn't protect you from the devil. But Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in his God's mighty power. As the psalmist declares, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Let me be very clear, if you are not a Christian and God is not your refuge, then you are already under the direct influence and tyranny of the devil, whether you know it or not. But if you are a Christian and you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are protected and victory over Satan has already been handed over to you. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ has ascended. And Christ has redeemed a people for himself. The devil has been defeated. He was no match for God. And God's church lived on the side of victory. But when we look at historical examples of war, even though the war has been decisively won and the other side has been defeated, the violence and struggle is not completely over. In the years that follow, we often see remnants of the defeated army and small resistant groups that refuse the outcome of the war. And they scheme and they harass and they do everything they can try to do to undermine 
the victory. Likewise, the devil has been defeated and his destruction is sure. But until the final consummation of God's kingdom when Christ returns, the devil will scheme and harass and Christians will endure an ongoing struggle. Paul describes this present struggle for Christians as so, in verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You see, we are not at war with flesh and blood. Our enemy is not other people, although sometimes they can often feel like it. But there is a sinister mastermind in the background, a puppet master who can operate through people, through human institutions and ideologies to afflict the church. We do not face a physical enemy, but a spiritual one with supernatural powers. The evil one and his army roam through the earth to wreak havoc. And so Christians must be prepared for the turbulence of spiritual warfare. Paul tells us in verse 11 to put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And again in verse 13, therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything, to stand. Notice here that his instruction for Christians is not to defeat the devil, but the instruction is to stand, to stand against the schemes, to stand your ground. We must persevere. We must endure Satan's harassment because the outcome of the war for the Christian is certain. We are already victorious in Christ. To the church of Christ, the devil is a conquered foe, a roaring lion whose fangs have been broken. Yet, although the devil knows that he cannot utterly destroy Christians, for nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, the devil will do everything in his power to make our lives miserable, to rob our joy, to make sin look attractive, to make us doubt our salvation and the promises of God. And Paul is telling us that the only way that we will be able to stand against the devil's schemes is to be equipped with the armor of God. Well, what exactly does Paul mean by the armor of God? One of the greatest preachers of the 20th century, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he preached a total of 68 sermons just on the armor of God. And this today is my humble attempt to fit everything I need to say 
into one sermon. And I share this to say that this passage right here is a very rich passage for a lifetime of learning and study to help us through spiritual warfare. For the Apostle Paul, the battle gear, the armor worn by soldiers going out to war is an analogy for the Christian's spiritual defense. He is actually drawing on Old Testament references. In Isaiah, the Messiah is described as a great warrior in full armor. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we have the privilege to put on His invincible armor, the armor of God. And each piece of the armor is tied to spiritual significance. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. Let's take a closer look at each of the six pieces of armor. First, the belt of truth. Paul writes in verse 14, Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Maybe Paul had in mind a belt with a leather apron, like what the Roman soldiers would wear, to protect their legs from enemy attack. Or maybe he had in mind a belt that held together the loose tunic so the soldier can be mobile in combat. Regardless, the belt was vital to help the soldier remain standing on their legs in battle. And so the Christian must put on the belt of truth by committing to embrace the truth and committing to speak the truth. Without the truth, our legs, our foundations is taken out and we are left defenseless. The devil is the father of all lies. He seeks to deceive us. He twists the word of God to make us turn against God. He gives large and big platforms to false teachers to corrupt the church. He puts distractions in front of us to keep us baby Christians shallow in our understanding of biblical truth and tossed back and forth by every wind of false doctrine. But Jesus said this. He said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The devil also incites us to lie to each other, to make us turn against each other. He tempts us with opportunities for dishonest gain. He stirs up rumors and gossip among God's people. He wants us to make it a habit to tell small lies and exaggerations to boost our own egos. But when we commit to be truthful, Satan may scheme, but we will have no cause for shame. Second, 
is the breastplate of righteousness. In the second half of verse 14. The breastplate is a tough piece of leather or metal that covers the soldier's upper body, protecting the heart and other vital organs. Nowadays, you don't often see police officers wear a full body gear, but only bulletproof vests, because one bullet to the chest could be fatal. So the Christian must put on the breastplate of righteousness as their primary defense. Without it, the Christian is exposed and naked and vulnerable to the accusations of the devil. Now, I often ask this question to Christians in order to test them. I ask them this, if you were to die tonight, how sure are you that you are going to heaven out of 1 to 10? 10 being most certain. Take a moment to honestly answer that question for yourself. If I hear their answers anything less than 10 out of 10, immediately I know that there is something wrong. Usually it means that they do not have a complete understanding of the Christian gospel, or they are living in willful disobedience to God and lacks confidence in whether they are truly a Christian. In either case, they have no protection against the devil's schemes and his accusations. The devil will condemn and say, because of your past, how can God possibly accept you? Because of your many failures, how can God fully forgive you? Because of your many sins, how can you go to heaven? And against these charges, if you bring forth your own righteousness and your own good works, the devil will laugh. Because when you're on your top behavior, you will feel closer to heaven. And on days that you mess up, you will feel closer to hell. You have no assurance of salvation because you still believe the false gospel of self-righteousness. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is that though we are sinners deserving of hell, God shows grace to those who confess that they have no righteousness of their own and trusts in His Son. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, the apostle writes, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Who is the one, the only one who had no sin? It is none other than the perfect and holy Son of God. God made Christ, who was sinless, to be sin. 
God regarded and treated our sins not as ours anymore, but Christ's. And in becoming sin for us, Christ became our substitute. Christ took upon our sins for himself and took every ounce of God's wrath and judgment that we deserve. But still, that's an incomplete understanding of the gospel. Because the apostle said, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, there is a beautiful exchange that happens when we trust in Jesus Christ. Our sins, all of our sins, is transferred to him, to Christ. And his righteousness is transferred to us. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to all believers. Christ's perfect life of obedience to the law is credited to our account. This is our sure defense against the accusations of the devil. And we can tell the devil, yes, I deserve to go to hell. But God is gracious, and in Christ, he counts me righteous and perfect. Yes, I am a great sinner, but Christ is a greater Savior. And as we are made righteous by Christ, we are enabled to progressively grow in conformity to Christ. We are empowered by the Spirit to live a holy and blameless life. Third is the shoes of the gospel of peace. Look with me to verse 15. Paul writes, And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. When you're a soldier on, on the battlefield, you need the right kind of footwear to move swiftly in combat. You can't show up in slippers to a war. Today we have specific shoes for different activities. We have shoes for running, shoes for hiking, shoes for basketball, shoes for tennis, shoes for the beach. Well, what kind of shoes are appropriate for the Christian? The gospel provides us solid footing on the battlefield. And the peace that comes from the gospel readies us to engage in spiritual warfare. But there could be also another interpretation of verse 15. Paul could be saying that Christians, the Christian's feet must be fitted with the readiness to herald the gospel. We need to put on the shoes that will help us travel a great distance and overcome great mountains to deliver the good news of Jesus Christ to all the nations. I think this is something that every single Christian needs to consider. Are you willing and ready to advance the gospel? Are you properly equipped and prepared for evangelism? Because evangelism and giving away the gospel is how the church 
pushes back on the darkness and the influence of Satan. There is a well-known quote that is often attributed to Albert Einstein. He said, if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. But the problem is that many Christians can't seem to confidently explain the gospel to someone else. And if they can't explain the gospel, do they really understand the gospel well enough? I'm convinced that if a person really knows the gospel, loves the gospel, and meditates on the gospel every day, they will not only have a burning desire to share with the world, but they will have the right words to articulate the gospel. Through campus ministry, I've trained many, many students, many Christian university students in evangelism. And I am, in one hand, encouraged by their enthusiasm. But on the other hand, I am unsettled by their lack of preparation, especially because many of them have been going to church their entire lives. It's not often that I meet a student who is actually proficient in articulating the gospel. But these are bright university students and young adults who are proficient in chemistry, in physics, in mathematics, in, hu in humanities, in music, in the arts, in all sorts of things. They spend hours and hours in study and in mastering their craft. But I wonder, why are so many of them not fluent in the gospel? You see, there is simply no excuse for our misplaced priorities. Imagine with me if we had generations of Christians who are properly prepared, proficient in the gospel, and sent out into the world as leaders in their industries, an army of witnesses who can actually stand against the tide of culture. What a threat to the devil and a powerful force we would be. If the whole church, rather than just a select few, was equipped and ready to advance the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we must reclaim the lost priority of evangelism. Let us not fall into the devil's trap and become idle and useless soldiers of Christ. Fourth is the shield of faith. Paul writes in verse 16, in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Roman soldiers carried large shields that they could use to block incoming arrows. Likewise, Satan's flaming arrows are blocked by the Christian's faith in God. Satan will throw at us temptation after temptation, trial after trial, 
and to try to make us trip and fall. And Pastor Garrett Kell reminds us, sin promises sweetness, but its pleasures expires immediately, and its aftertaste is always bitter. But God's promises are better. You see, the devil, he knows your every weakness, your every desire in your heart. And those are the areas that he often attacks. And the most effective way to resist sin is to fight with the promises of God. Remember that God wants to give you something so much better. That God's way is always better. That in God is true life. John Piper puts it this way, we must fight fire with fire. The fire of lust's pleasures must be fought with the fire of God's pleasures. If we try to fight the fire of lust with prohibitions and threats alone, even the terrible warnings of Jesus, we will fail. We must fight it with the massive promise of superior happiness. We must swallow up the little flicker of lust's pleasure in the conflagration of holy satisfaction. And so Christians take up the shield of faith by resting upon Christ and all his benefits. We must learn to enjoy him all the days of our lives, through the highs, through the lows, and even through the valley of the shadow of death. Like Daniel and the lion's den, we must have confident faith in God who is with us, who is for us. Next is the helmet of salvation in verse 17. Roman soldiers wore helmets that were made from strong metal to protect their heads from deadly blows. In battle, the head is a major target. Likewise, the Christian's mind is a major target for the devil. He knows that some wounds to our minds are more harmful and deadly than wounds to our bodies. Satan will implant destructive thoughts into our minds. He will scatter the seeds of doubt, of malice, of envy, and the like. But the Christian must be aware that our thoughts and even our emotions are corruptible. We must not let our sinful thoughts, our anger, our depression, our anxieties, and even our fears to dictate our lives. Rather, we must take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We must exert all of our minds to focus on the salvation we have in Christ. This is what it means to put on the helmet of salvation. In Philippians chapter 4, the apostle writes, Whatever is true, 
whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. When we ponder about God's faithfulness to us and our inheritance in Him, that will never perish, never spoil or fade. Our mind is securely protected. God actually wants you and I to have assurance of salvation. No matter what the devil throws at us, no matter what hardship we face, we are emboldened as we remember our final destination. Heaven awaits for the children of God. Finally, the sword of the Spirit. Paul writes in the second half of verse 17, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The final piece of armor of God is not for the purpose of defense, but for offense. John MacArthur comments, as a sword was the soldier's only weapon, so God's word is the only needed weapon, infinitely more powerful than any of Satan's. The Bible is God's word inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. But you and I both know that your Bible is not useful if it's sitting on your shelf collecting dust. Charles Spurgeon once said, a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who's not. And I think that's very true. A soldier who goes to war without a sword is a sitting duck. The devil attacks relentlessly, and you can hold up the shield, but the shield will eventually crack. The Christian also needs to go on the offensive. The best defense is a good offense. If we want to remain standing, we must wield the sword of the Spirit and cut down the lies of Satan. We need to study the Word of God at home and with the church. We need to daily meditate on the promises of God. We need to commit to memory Bible verses that will help us fight our battles and temptation. And so, beloved church, we face an indomitable foe who appears before us as a giant, as Goliath. But Christ has bound the strong man. And Christ has declared, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So let us not be afraid of the devil and his schemes, but let us be ready and equipped with the full armor of God, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. And let us fight the good fight of faith 
and finish the race, all to the glory of God. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word. Help us now to walk in step with your spirit. Help us to obey your word. Help us to stay faithful to you. Help us to commit to the truth that we may be found standing when the day of evil comes. No matter what the devil throws at us, Lord, help us, Lord, to stand, not by our own power, but by your power and by your strength. We thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.